You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Some of the bigger events that I can recall um, through my timeline, I was born in 84, so I'm 38 as of this last January. First, of course, was the the 9-11 event. I was a senior in high school on that day, and they wheeled in that little box television set that the Spanish teacher used for those videos and said that there was some important news for us to watch. And just like everybody else, I mean, between the first and the second plane, like, nobody concluded that that could be a terrorist event. Like, I guess everybody's optimistic until there's reason not to be, and so there wasn't a lot of skepticism. It just seemed like a very sad thing that an accident had occurred like that. But when that second plane hit, it was like the hair on your arms stood up. Even as a senior, you understood the magnitude of that, and sitting there in government class talking about things like representative government and three-party systems and so forth. All of that kind of falls apart in shambles pretty quickly when an event like that takes place. And I can remember um, a different time back in Catholic school in 94 when the, the TV got wheeled in at this other time, and uh, there's a white Ford Bronco driving down that a freeway there in, in uh, California, in L.A., I suppose, and just remember only knowing O.J. Simpson from the Lethal Weapon movies. Like, I never saw the guy run a football. I only knew him being the funny guy on that Leslie Nielsen movie. And, um, and to, to, to see and suggest somebody that has so much and was so likable uh, to be put out in front of the camera like that with so much brokenness and so much darkness, really, was pretty shaking, I think, for me as a young kid in the fourth grade and seeing all of the tabloids and all of the characters and all of the drama and ugliness that ensued out of that was quite the awakening, I guess, in terms of what's out there as a fourth grader uh, seeing that. And then the last one I could think of was the Columbine shooting. I, I remember getting a training um, as a, that one as well. I think it was, I guess it was my freshman year in high school. So it was kind of like a, a moment to ponder and think about high school and who I was with and how pain can be so silent sometimes and anger can be so silent sometimes. And um, yeah, it was just hard to put words to exactly what that felt like. But I remember sitting in the training for what an active shooting situation would look like and wondering if my parents ever went through an active shooting situation and just having all sorts of those types of questions. And, and so I bring that up today in view of the series that we're getting started. Uh, usually, if you're new here, we're usually getting through whole books of the Bible from left to right, just in the way that God has provided to hear what he might say in every season. But um, in the book of Romans, it is written by the Apostle Paul, uh, Paul and all the apostles, whether it's John or Peter or the people that wrote you know, the letters that are at the back of our Bibles past the Gospels. Those, those apostles, one of the greatest apologetics for the validity of their claims um, is that they died for their faith. Like In other words, like if the, if the idea was to set up some government takeover, host some social revolution, then why put your life on the line? Why die for your message You know, if it's all about you know, um, trying to create some political upheaval. And, uh, and the claim that they, they made as they went and risked their lives and, um, and, and went across all sorts of miles of, of, uh, of terrain in order to get their message to the people that they felt they were called to was that the gospel that they had was not just good advice. Uh, it was not just good philosophy. Uh, it was not just a warning about the good people going to the good place, the belief was that the gospel was the good news of Jesus. The good news that 
the rabbi in Bethlehem, was, was the, the fit for the promise of all the things that the Old Testament had promised about being the Messiah, not only for Israel, but for the world, and that his life and that his death and resurrection was not just a pithy theology or a pithy philosophy, that it was power. Paul would say it up there on the screen. This is going to kind of be a memory verse for our time in Romans as we meditate on it. But in verse 17, maybe it stuck out to you. It certainly, rather, in 16, rather, stuck out for me in terms of planning for the series in the next couple, 21 weeks. Is verse 16, Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says, because it's not talk, it's power. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. In other words, the gospel that Paul is willing to live and die for is not a political rhetoric. Like when he talks about the gospel or writes about the gospel, his belief is that what's coming out of his mouth or his pen is not syllables, but spiritual power. That even the statement today, this morning, if I were to proclaim to you under the authority of Jesus, that Jesus died, that he was buried for three days, and that he was resurrected, that anyone that would believe unto him would not perish but have eternal life, that what's conveying out of my mouth is not just words out of a tongue, but power being transferred, the power of God for salvation, and that this salvation proclamation was not just for some, an elite uh, enclave of good guys that are being rescued and saved from the bad guys or the smart people or the intellectual people or the rich people. No, it was, it was the, the power of God for salvation for all people because all people needed it. It's that all people are bad guys and Jesus is the only good guy. And that the problem of evil is not just a problem, it's a prison. We are not just struggling with sin, we're slaves to it outside of Christ. And that the power of God has come in the, in the name of Jesus to release Spiritual slaves to make them spiritually free for all who would believe, only by faith. By faith for all that would believe, not, not by works, not by the actions that we do, but by the things that he's done. This is, this is the gospel. This is what they, they claimed. And they believed that it changed everything. In other words, the gospel, the, the apostles, as they preached, they didn't just die for the gospel, they lived for it. Like if you go through all the letters past, you know, the book of Acts, Romans, all the way through, you know, Revelation, um, What's, what's mentioned there is that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A through Z. You got a marriage problem, you actually don't have a marriage problem, you have a gospel problem. So I'm, I'm pulling up the chair, and you didn't graduate from the gospel to go figure it out on your own. I'm pulling up the chair to you because the gospel is not just the ABCs, it's A through Z. If you have a money problem, you don't have a money problem, you have a gospel problem. You have an in-law problem, you don't have an in-law problem, you have a gospel problem. You have a less problem, you don't have a less problem, you have a gospel. It's like the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believed. And the gospel is not just for the afterlife, it's for all of life. It changes everything. And that is the essence of really what news is. It's why we are looking into tabloids and why CNN and Fox argue over what the spin of the news actually will be, because it's not the advice that changes us, it's the news. It's what we believe is actually true and possible that will actually change us. And so that is why the apostles are willing to go at great lengths and, and um, pass through you know, uh, great trials and tribulations in order to get that gospel across? Why would they die? Why would a group of, of young, average, everyday fishermen or, or whoever it is, tax collectors, 
leave their life at the door and cross oceans in order to get this message across, unless the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, first for the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so as we get into the study of Romans, you might be reading along with us and encourage you to kind of read before we get together on Sundays and read after and meditate. We talked about that, why scripture is not maybe 10% about revelation, but 90% of what transforms us is the meditation on what that word would be. And as we read Romans, maybe on our own, we need to remember that all of these letters, not the least of these is Romans, are letters, not textbooks. So when you open up your, your Bible and you read into Romans, you want to think more like a Verizon transcript than you want to think about a college library. It's a conversation between a, a, a writer and a sender. There's somebody that wrote it that was sent into a recipient, and that's a beautiful thing. We, we, we can't try and make the Bible what it's not, because we do like intellectual things, and we like systematic theology, and we want to have answers for life's biggest questions, but the Bible didn't give us a textbook. The Bible gave us letters. And one of the beautiful things about having letters in your Bible rather than textbooks is that along with the messages of those letters, you get the messengers. You get to see the tears of the, of the prophet. You get to see the tears of the apostle. You get to get, see the tears of the pastor that's writing to their church. Like, it's not, it's not professors teaching a class. It's pastors pleading for their churches. That's what this letter is about. And so just to give a little bit of a lowdown of, of what that looks like in the, in the context of where that conversation is going on between Paul and the church at Rome is that Paul is writing and pleading to the church that he's never met before. He's praying for people that he's never seen face to face. And he is appealing to them, yes, to believe the gospel, but the, the pastoral... Um, the pastoral context of what's going on between Paul and this church is that the church is, is severely divided over Jew and Gentile. And so in the beginning of the church, whereas the gospel made its way first to Jerusalem, Judea, and then to the ends of the earth, was primarily Jewish. But as the gospel spread uh, in concentric circles to the wider areas, the, the demographic of the church shifted from primarily being Jewish to being also slave and barbarian, Greek, and Gentile. And so how do you do that? Like, how do you get about breaking bread and sharing one another and having no need among you and having everything in common? Like, how do you go about doing koinonia with a severely fractured uh, group of people like Jews and Gentiles? And so, and so the, the, the concept that is being applied here by Paul towards the Roman church, as we read on 1 through 16, the chapters, is that his, his belief about how to consult a church that's struggling with division is to preach the gospel. Because we don't have division problems, we have gospel problems. That's his pastoral logic. And so this is what you're going to see time and time again as we make our way, not the least of these, you know, today, is, is, that, is that although religion leads to division, that the gospel leads to unity. Religion is about me being blessed because I've done something better, but the gospel is saying I've blessed through Jesus only because I'm broken. And whereas in religion you can have tears of superiority, the gospel can only produce servanthood. And so this is the general line that we'll, we'll take in terms of what the argument of this letter is really about from a pastoral sense, is that the gospel is the power of God that saves but the gospel that saves is also the gospel that changes, and the gospel that changes us is the gospel that unites us. Do you follow that? And so this is going to be the argument that we're going to continue to work through as we work through the book of Romans together in the next couple of months. But it's the gospel that's the power of God is the power to save, but not just that. The gospel is the power to change. Many of us that are white-knuckling right now and trying to do moral behavior patterns and changing our habits and, you know, 
working on uh, mental maps and all these types of things, the idea of self-change and self-growth is all in vanity, according to Paul. But he says the gospel is not just the thing that saves us, it's the thing that changes us, and a changed church leads to uni- unity in the gospel, not division. And so here's my agenda just in a couple weeks as we, as we get going on this, and I'm going to uh, work through Romans 1 today. But um, my agenda, pastorally here in City Lights, is the reason why we'd be reading this in the next couple of weeks is that we wouldn't just have an encounter with words on a page, but an encounter with power. And that by, by thoroughly meditating and working through this beautiful book that has led to salvation and revival for so many of church fathers and churches and just regular average everyday Joes, it's just a clear, clairvoyant picture and a proclamation of what the gospel looks like, that for city lights, it wouldn't just be words on a page, it'd be power through the Holy Spirit to save. That in some Sundays, not the least of these is, is this Sunday potentially, that because the gospel is being proclaimed in this room, that people will be saved in this room. But not only that, that we would become more bold, less cold in the gospel, and proclaim the gospel to our neighbors and to our friends, and that over the next 21 weeks, just because we are meditating on these words, that the power of the gospel would do work in our life to see salvation. And so pray with me in the next couple of months as we work through this book together that we would see salvation in this room and outside of it. The second thing is that uh, I think that in reading the book of Romans, I think it would be a powerful way to see change happen, that many of us that are Again, working through identity problems and relationship problems and money problems and habit problems that Paul and, uh, and, the, and the founding apostles right, would, would, would suggest to us, would prescribe to us no better solution for these types of problems, marriage problems, lust problems than the gospel, that we wouldn't white knuckle into behavior modification, but we would see actual real gospel change from the inside out. And that in preaching the gospel and going through Romans, we might not just see salvation in here and out there, but also change inside of us. And lastly, that the gospel would unify us, that the reason why we'd be here tonight is not, or this morning is not just because we're a certain race or class or academic status, but no, because we're united in one thing and one thing alone, which is the gospel, the good news of Christ. Sound like a plan? I'm going to ask you guys this one intentional question as we make through our passage today, but just as a threshold front door question, as you are making your way and following Jesus to look like him, and you think about that word gospel that we've been talking about for the last 10, 15 minutes, Are you growing more bold or cold in the gospel? That's the question I'm going to ask today. And we're moving towards communion, which is a great way to think about and celebrate the gospel. But are you, at 25 or 35 or 55 or 85, are you today versus yesterday growing more bold or ashamed in the gospel? Is it the power to save or just fancy rhetoric? Political evangelicalism. Is it, is it the power of God to save? Is it still the power of God to save? Was it just for Paul or is it today the power of God to save? Is it for all or is it for some? Is it that the good guys would get saved from the bad guys or that the bad guys would become more good or is it that dead people are coming alive because of the gospel? Is the gospel something that's growing cold or bold in you today? And lastly, is it by faith or is it by works? Is it something that we're doing in order that we might gain favor from God, or is it something that we do because we already already have it? All right, let me read the the first paragraph here. Uh, Read it with me. Romans 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, it says, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Spirit regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. 
and you also are among the Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So if you got a chance to have a little Starbucks date with Paul up the road there at Starbucks, and you sat down with your caramel macchiato, and you gave Paul a little napkin with a pen and told him to write down in three words or less what the gospel is, the napkin that you get back across the table is not going to say, Jesus loves you. And the napkin also that you get back with a little pen in the napkin is not going to say, what would Jesus do? Even the napkin that you get back, although these were, this would probably be warmer than the other two, is not actually even just going to say Jesus saves. The shorthand moniker there of what all the apostles claimed the good news was about is actually found in verse 4. The words you would see slid across on the napkin would be, Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you see that in verse 4? This is what the gospel is to Paul. You're thinking, oh, he's going to get into the gospel. You know, like God loves you, has a plan for you, and this sort of thing. He actually has already started. He's already begun preaching the gospel. This is the gospel. That the one who was promised by all the prophets, the one who was born in the line of David, the one that was died and resurrected to come again, is Lord. This is what the gospel is, that Jesus is Lord, which has all sorts of connotations, of course, but that's the shorthand moniker, the way that he would write and talk about, talk about the gospel. And so the reason why he would say that is because Paul is not just an advocate for the New Testament, he's an advocate for the Old Testament. In other words, the New Testament didn't just come to replace the Old Testament, the New Testament came to fulfill it. And that means that Jesus wasn't just a miracle worker that came to do miracles for people and make people nicer. The, the, the New Testament, or the Old Testament, is claiming that Jesus is um, not just a miracle worker, he's the Messiah. That the Old Testament and all of its books are not supposed to be thrown out and aside as though they're irrelevant now because Jesus came. Jesus came and he didn't neglect the Old Testament. He says, I came to fulfill the Old Testament. I am the fulfilled promise of everything that that book is saying. And so here's a sense, the, the nutshell of what the Old Testament is saying. The Old Testament is saying that the problem of evil that's in our, in our, in our midst, the problem of evil that's around us in society, the problem of evil that's even in between us in our gossip and our slander and our jealousies and our quarrels, the power of evil that's inside of us is not just, not just the problem, it's a prison. It is, it is something that, that cannot be broken out of. And so, so God has promised in his wisdom from the very beginning of time in Genesis 3 that he would, he would bring not just a nice Messiah to teach us a couple things or some practical advice about how to be a better leader or get more friends, but to actually break the power of evil in our lives through the cross. So I can remember um, a formative uh, moment in my life growing up. We went to this mission trip um, in Cabrini Green, Chicago, uh, which my mom is like a super kind of risk taker type of person and doesn't worry about a lot of stuff. And so when I came home sophomore year and told my mom that I was going to go to Cabrini Green, Chicago, and she was like, uh-oh, uh, I knew that it was like going to be pretty crazy. And so I kind of Wikipedia'd that thing, and it was like, um, I think at one point the mayor of Chicago tried to like live there to prove that like it wasn't as bad as everybody said that it was, and like a bunch of people were getting like shot with sniper rifles outside, and uh, it was a government program that was set up in the 50s, and it just kept going down and down and down and down, and so we showed up there, and uh, it was like something I'd never seen before. You know, it was like drug needles all over the ground, and like just the depth of the smell of urine. Like when you're walking through the hallways of this thing, there's people that are like just not having any place to put their trash, they're, like storing trash in the doors next door and so forth, and. Um, I just remember like seeing uh, little kids like making, doing the little parachute game with them and talking to them about the gospel and just feeling so helpless, honestly, so powerless to do anything of, of, of importance or significance in that place. And, and I remember talking to the guy afterwards and um, not unlike what Paul is talking about here, he's just like, yeah, the thing you have to understand, you know, I guess from a person from the suburbs that comes in is like, 
The prison walls of this community is not physical, it's spiritual. Like the problem of this thing is not just to throw paint up on the, on the playground because after you put the paint up there, the paint's just gonna chip off. And the problem's not even education because once you educate the person, they're just gonna, you know, they don't have the familial background and the support to make their way through the rest of the stages of life. And the problem isn't just to bring in, you know, necessarily church services and preachers because there's so many physical needs that need to get met. And so the problem is like, it's more than just a problem. It's like this prison, this sociological thing that exists in the minds and the hearts. And so I share that with you as this story because the premise of the gospel is that we are not just struggling with the problem of sin. We are struggling with a, with a systemic, like evil uh, prison of, of sin in which the Messiah has to come in and to be Lord over, over all these things. And so this is, this is important that Paul would start this out because he's demanding at the very beginning of this letter that the gospel is not about rhetoric or talk. It is about power. That the one who was promised 2,000 prophecies before he arrived and arrived at this exact time, at the exact place, through the exact means by which the prophecies had all claimed, right? That, that Jesus is not just, he's not just replacing the Old Testament. He is fulfilling it proves this very important fact that Jesus is not just a nice guy doing cool miracles. He is Messiah. He has come to break the shackles of spiritual bondage that exists in poor, middle-class, and rich people. And so this is the importance of remembering this because if not, the gospel becomes about talk. And so again, the first question I just want to have for you as you think about this, as we get into Romans for the next couple months, is this, is, is the gospel to you, is it talk or is it power? Is it syllables or is it actually spiritual things that are happening within the room? Because all of that will change the way that you approach your neighbor and your friend and, 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 um, and your family members and the way that you think about what actually makes the gospel what the gospel is. Is the gospel about talk or is it about power? I can remember at Campus Crusade for Christ, we went out and did the initiative evangelism and we shared the four spiritual laws and I must have shared with 25 people the gospel that summer. I shared, you know, like a little survey, and you asked them about their spiritual background, and you walked through Romans Road, actually, and talked to them about, about the gospel. And out of the 28 people, zero of them came to Christ. It was like this kind of frustrating thing because my buddy Isaac, who was my roommate, was like apparently the anointing of Billy Graham, and every person that he ever shared with, they're like coming to the altar and like coming, coming to Jesus. And meanwhile, like, for whatever reason, like it wasn't, it wasn't clicking. And I can remember it almost as a devotional moment to like teach me something to remember and carry with me, I guess, for, for up and even till now. Is at the very end of the summer, it was like in July, that I would, had gone through and had been talking, to the gospel, talking the gospel to people on the boardwalk. And, and this little girl came up to me and uh, she just, just right there, just all, all she came up to me, approached me and just said, hey, like, what do I need to do to get saved? This little girl comes up to me, and I'm like ready to go through my whole like little speech. I'm like, don't you need the little elevator speech? Like, where are you going to go when you die? And like, here's the gap, and how far it is. And if Usain Bolt jumped off the thing, he wouldn't make it to the gospel. He's like, I'm showing them the whole diagram. She's like, yeah, that's fine, but I, I just want to know how to be saved. And I said, well, it's just, it's just faith. Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again for your sins? She said, yeah. She must have been 13 years old. No parents around? Maybe it's just an angel to make me feel better about myself. I'm not really even sure. I'm still working. I want that gift, man. I want it. And so we just, we just prayed. Jesus, I'm not just having a problem. I'm in a prison. I can't get out. I'm not just walking through sin. I'm buried in it. Like I need salvation. I need your power. And it must have been a 30-second prayer. I mean, 
Jesus, we thank you that it's not about what we've done, but what you've already done. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that what is now true, what was true of her was true of you, and what was true of you is now true of her, and everything that you have is hers. And we prayed about that thing, and, and it, it's, it's, if, if anything, just to be an echo in my heart and my mind for all of my life in ministry, remember, this thing is not about talk, it's about power. It's not about going to where God is needed to go. It's like joining him where he's already working because it's his power that's already gone out ahead of you. And so the gospel that we are preaching, not just showing, but telling, it does need to be demonstrated, but also proclaimed that when words come out of our mouth, it's not syllables, it's spiritual power. That we wouldn't grow cold in the gospel, that we wouldn't forget that this is not about us, it is about him. And as every time we proclaim the gospel, we are proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. And all of those promises that came from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament, all of those things came true, not because of people's actions, but because of the power of God to fulfill his promises. That Jesus is the fulfilled promise, that he is Lord, he is the Messiah. The second thing I want to ask you today about the gospel, just as a spiritual inventory, is, is, the, is the gospel to you something that is for all or for some? So let's look through at the, uh, the rest of the passage here. He gets into the kind of the pastoral side of this, and this is where a lot of us, you know, more academic, analytical people want to skip through all this stuff. Like, this isn't the, the important part. We want to get down to Romans 3 and Romans 4, and what does justification mean? What does faith mean? Like, we want to go and, you know, analyze the thing. And we can't skip through to the theological side without getting through the pastoral side. Like, this is a letter, not a textbook. And so verse 8 says this, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. And I want you to think about how personal this all sounds. Think about how personal Paul takes this. Relationally, God, whom I serve in my spirit, is preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness, how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open to you open for me to come to you. Listen to all that, the longing, the prayers, the thanksgiving, the remembrances of people that he hasn't even met before. Like, this is not just the mind of Paul. It's the heart of Paul coming across on the page. I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That, that is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have been, I've had among the Gentiles. And so he's coming along as the leader and a forerunner, as a sent one in the beginning of this church, but he's not coming as a boss, but as a servant, as a friend, brothers, that I would come next to you and mutually encourage you, meaning I would get something from you and you would also get something from me in Jesus. And so there's this relational thing. It's not a professor, it's a pastor. I'm obligated with this passion both to the Greeks and to the non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Is the gospel for all or for some. So the gospel is not just a show, it's a tell. That's the conclusion I have to get when I read the book of Romans is that the Bible is coming to us today to not just tell us what the gospel is, but show us what it looks like. And the words that it's choosing to convey the show of the tell is words like longing and thanks and remembrance and encouragement and brotherhood and mutualism, not just academic, scholastic, theological ideas. It's, it's, it looks like something. And it, and it looks like, keep in mind, in terms of the autobiography here of, of, of Paul or the biography of Paul, is that Paul just, you know, earlier in his life, and his career, the same church that he's trying to mentor and shape and pastor was the same church he was trying to murder. That the opening line of this basically Jewish Supremacist begins his letter with a servant line. 
that I'm not coming to you to lord over you. I'm coming to lower myself under you to serve you as a pastor, right? Not as a supremacist. And so, so, so if the gospel is a show and a tell, if there's a moral to the story, like what is being shown through Paul's life, not just in his message, but what is the messenger showing us in his life? And this is basically, I think, what he's getting at. I think what he's trying to do here in a very cordial and diplomatic way is he's sort of saying this. If you're seeing me at the risk of my own life and at the cost of my own dime to come across the ocean to you, do you think you have it in you to cross the aisle to your brother? That's the argument. He's coming to a divided church, and he knows the church that saves the church that changes, and the church that changes the church unites. Religion divides, but the gospel unites. So I'm not just coming to you to tell you what the gospel is. I'm here to show you what it looks like. And so he's showing, along with the proclamation of the gospel, what the gospel looks like in his life, and that is to cross any means to get across the gospel to anyone that would listen. Because the gospel cannot create supremacists. It can only create servants. It can only create people that come and, and, and to serve. And so the question I have for you today, is the gospel for some or is it for all? Is it for the good guys or the bad guys, right? Because if, if the gospel is, is just for the good guys to get saved from the bad guys, then it just becomes the gospel is about literacy, that I'm going to go and help somebody to read a little bit better, or the gospel just becomes about food, I'm going to go feed somebody, or the gospel just becomes about um, money, and I'm going to give uh, things and, and generosity and benevolence to another person. But the gospel, according to Paul, is not just about talk or about social programs, but it is about power, that all people are the bad guys, and Jesus is the only good guy. And so it's not just the gospel is for them, but it's also for me. And the gospel in me is the only thing that I can share the gospel through me, right, with. And so this, is, this, this would be the message is that there, there is no one in Christ that is better than anyone else. There is no supremacy in Christ, right? Like in terms of his body, there's supremacy in, in the son, but not supremacy in the body. There is only blessing and therefore serving. And so the appeal here is that the, the religion of a divided church comes from, I'm, I'm blessed that makes me better than you through religion rather than I'm blessed because I'm broken and because he has healed me from the inside out through his power and through his son. And so I'm not here to be better than you. I'm here to offer the blessing that he's offered you. And so we can't forsake the pastoral sides of this letter as we read through alongside with the theological ones. The last question I have is this, is, is the gospel come to us through faith or through works? One of the things that, um, uh, well, actually, I'll read the passage here in verse 16 and then get over to Romans uh, 4 in just a moment. But he closes up with the key passage, I think, that really drives us through all the 16 chapters of this book. He says this, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. He says, first for the Jew and then for the Gentiles. And this is really the single verse that I think he's going he's gonna to push through in, this, in the rest of this letter, verse 17. Because he says, Christ, the one who came like he was promised in the line of David, and he fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies, and he came in power, not just in talk. He says, this is what the gospel is in Jesus. This is what that means. This is what the gospel means. The gospel means that because Jesus is Lord, that the righteousness of God has been revealed. The way to be right with God is shown in Jesus in the cross. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, that, righteous will, that the righteous will live by faith. The righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, that the righteous will live by faith. One of the best arguments that Paul is going to make in Romans 4, which puts us out in a couple weeks, 
is this before or after question that he poses to the Jews. This letter ultimately is like a college acceptance letter. Like, it's basically this squabble, which, by the way, the Church of Romans was about the size of this room. It's about 100 people. And they were fiercely divided over the supremacy of what actually makes you blessed and what doesn't make you blessed. And the Jews, of course, believed in circumcision and Sabbath and their dietary restriction. They believed that that was the thing that got them saved, or at least that was some of the residue of what they used to believe. And they were wrestling with what faith would mean in Christ in light of those things. And so you get this little college acceptance letter, and this very last little tagline is not good news for you if you're a Jew. Like, in other words, Paul picked a side. He didn't play diplomat by just saying, well, it's kind of half works and half faith. And he said, it's all faith. It's all faith. And in verse 17, this would be the bad news moment in order that I think would really open up, obviously, the ultimate good news for all Jew and Gentiles. But for the Jews, at least, it's discouraging because for in the gospel it is written that righteousness is real, that righteousness is by faith. In other words, righteousness is not by the law. It's by faith. And so he, he asks this really great questions in Romans 4. He asks, he says, listen, when you go back in Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham first gets called, and then you go into 17 when he gets the covenant and when he gets circumcised, and you go through the life of Abraham, he, he asks this really important question. Did God's blessing come to Abraham before or after he obeyed? Did God's call to Abraham come before or after he was circumcised? Before or after Abraham, like when he took Isaac, I think it's Genesis 21 or Genesis 22, when he took Isaac up the hill, was that before or after the call? Because the order of operations is everything. If Abraham received grace from God after he did what he did in obedience, then the gospel is about earning wages, he says. But if the gospel came to Abraham before he did anything, then that's good news to Jews and Gentiles because that means the gospel didn't come to us as a wage, it came to us as a gift. It came to us because, not in order that or if. And that's not just the beginning of your life. Look at what he says at the end of verse 17. It's not just first by faith and then by works. He says what? From faith in the beginning to faith until the end. Meaning from the beginning to the end, the only thing that's right about you or me is Jesus. This is essentially what justification would mean. I think I sent a picture back, a little doodle uh, in my notebook if it made it back. But if you've ever been in an argument before, you guys have any, any spouses or kids or whatever, you ever been in, in a boss? You ever been in an argument before? You ever notice how as the argument goes on, the voices gets louder, people just don't stop listening to what the other one's saying and they just basically talk over each other? You ever hear that? You ever feel like you're in the middle of the argument and you just want to get that last word in? Like, you know better, like you should just stop talking because it's not really going to convince them. But just for the sake of the jury that doesn't exist, I'm going to state my case. And man, if I even think of a good argument on the way home, I might just text it to you because I want to get that last word in, right? Because it's not really about, you know, the toys that the kids are fighting about or the cheese that somebody left out of the refrigerator. It's about who's right and who's wrong. And doggone it, you know that you're right. And they're the wrong ones, right? Isn't that what this is about? And so deep down inside of us is this, is this question, and this is what I think I would like to show you there on, on the screen, but it's like the Jews and the Gentiles and us, we're really always wondering, like, how are we right? And are we right before God? That's what those arguments are about, is who's right and who's wrong. And the good news to us has to start with a kind of a bad news in verse 17, in the sense that Paul's telling them and us in this room that none of us are right. You can even sense in the middle of that argument that even as you're raising your voice and increasing the volume, they've just said something that is kind of true about you, and you know you're kind of wrong. Like, you might be 98% right, but 2% of that, they were kind of right on that one. 
You're not going to admit it, and you're going to argue out of it, and you're going to try and argue yourself as to why you're right. But Paul is saying that nobody is right except for Jesus. There's nothing right about you or me except for Christ. And so this is what he's ultimately saying with this last little tagline. It's the thing that we'll walk through with the rest of the book. Is that the righteous live by faith? In other words, the question as you read through the book of Genesis and Abraham is you know the guy's a doofenshmirf. You know that he's selling his wife over to Egypt. You know that he's screwing up. You know he's not listening to God. You know he's afraid of his own shadow. You know he's not doing anything right. And you know you're more like him than you are like Jesus. And so the question becomes, like, if he's so wrong, then how can God treat him so right? What is it about Abraham's life that allows him to be seen and treated and made right? And Paul is saying that that mystery has become revealed in Christ. Jesus is what made Abraham right. Jesus is the one that allowed Abraham to be seen right, and Jesus is the one that allowed Abraham to be made right as he walked in faith in many ways in his life and remembered in Hebrews 11. Jesus is the only one, the only thing that's right about you or me, and so the righteous, the righteous are the ones, not that are able to do their own works, but the ones that look to Jesus as their righteousness. And so the little chart is simply this, is that he that knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteous of God. In other words, that Jesus became as we were so that we could become as he is. And what's true of Jesus is now true of you. The past that you had, Jesus took your past. You were going to be buried in a rich earthly person's grave. He was buried in a rich man's grave. He gave up his spirit so you could have his spirit. He became a criminal because you were a criminal, but now you're innocent and you're called the righteous God. You could take any number of things about the qualifications of your identity today, your national heritage, who you are, who you were born to, your amount of money, all that sort of things. He took all of those things as a, as a justification, as an even swap that you would take on his life and he would take on yours. And that is the only way that we are right. That's the only way that we're righteous. And so that's what it means to be right by faith, that we live a, a because life and not an if life. It's really difficult in church to see other people that that are full of the fruits of the Spirit in some cases, and that are walking in faith and doing the things that Jesus did while he was on this earth, and think that in order to do what they do, I need to act like they act. But ultimately, Paul is saying in this gospel that in order to walk in righteousness and trust in righteousness, it only comes by one way, by faith, by believing in the one that Abraham believed. Because it's a gift and because it's not a wage. And so I'll ask you this this question again, just to get us going for, for this series in the book of Romans, but... Uh, as far as the gospel goes, the proclamation, the powerful proclamation that Jesus died and that he raised, that he lived for us, that he died for us, that anyone that would believe unto him would not taste eternal life, but uh, not taste death, but, but taste eternal life through his son, through Jesus. Are you growing more cold or bold in that truth? That's the question I want you to think about. In other words, is it power or is it talk? Is it something that you're planning about? the ministries that you're a part of, the the people that you pray for, the people that you'd be scared to share the gospel with? Is the sharing and the proclamation of gospel something that you're doing with the syllables that are coming out of your mouth, or is it something that the Spirit is doing in your midst? That's a huge question. Are you growing bold or ashamed in the gospel today? Is it for all or is it for some? Is it for the good people to practice so that they avoid the consequences for the bad people? Is it, is it for the rich or, or, or just for the poor? Is it, is it something that needs to get preached to this political party but not this political party? Is it something that needs to get preached to you know, uh, this type of personality versus that type of personality? Or is the gospel for all people? That's a big, that will 
have dramatic implications for the way that we, um, the way that we walk out the gospel and consider the gospel in our life. And lastly, is the gospel about faith or is it about works? Is it an if or is it a because? Is it a gift or is it a wage? And these are the types of things I, I, I want to be um, prayerful about and, and, and uh, focused on as we get through the book of Romans. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.